the main attraction Engaging vibes is where I wanna be And chance and light to smiles is all you see <laughs> So I ain't thinking about the next one Snapping pics, they be loving my fashion Great drinks, great friends, and it's flowing well It's a perfect event, shout out Riel Hello everybody, thank you for continuing to join this conversation I am about to bring on two really incredible people to talk about something that is really important to my heart, and that's talking about domestic and child abuse. I think that, and this is just me kind of contextualizing why I wanted to do this panel and why this panel was so important to me, and to start today with it. In our community, in a lot of black communities, um, domestic abuse and child abuse really isn't addressed. A lot of times we shame the victims and we don't know red flags. Uh, we're used to thinking like, oh, well, that little girl's trying to be fast. You know, she shouldn't have gone over there to that person's house or you should have known better instead of taking, putting the onus on the abuser. And so I'm hoping by having this panel today, we can start thinking about what are red flags, unlearning things that are might be with ingrained within our community and our culture, but by no, by no stretch of imagination is a reflection on us as individuals, but it might just be that we're not aware of what we're seeing and how we can help or how do we intervene because sometimes we're kind of scared to for like the potential consequences. So I'm gonna bring um, up Dottie and Michael. Give me just one second. I think Michael is still joining us now, but I have Dottie. And so I'm gonna let her, um, hop on and just introduce herself. I will be moderating this um, discussion only because I just feel like it, I'm someone who's not in the field, I'm not in this area, but I think that I could ask questions from an everyday person's perspective. And if you all have questions, please, please, please ask them because that's what this is about. This is about you all getting answers. So thank you. Thank you, Dottie. Hi. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are sure. and you know. Sure, um, so my name is Dottie Hernandez. I am a Mexican-American woman born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, I was raised by a Mexican immigrant family and I'm the first to graduate from college. Um, I graduated from Wellesley College in 2011 and I've worked in the social service and public health sector um, since then in both LA and now here in Sacramento for the last two years. Um, I currently serve as an adult psychiatric case manager in a residential facility here in um, Sacramento. That's part of a company called um, Crestwood Behavioral Health. Um, I specialize in non-violent crisis prevention and intervention. Um, and I also specialize in trauma-informed care. Um, I am a child abuse survivor, so I speak from experience, um, and I was primarily driven to educate myself about how chronic um, domestic violence affects um, the individual later in life, which we see a lot. Uh, I just wanted to say that my primary reason for being here today is to support my black brothers and sisters um, in any way that I can and to help the community navigate through this pandemic of injustice because it's not just COVID that's the pandemic right now. It's not, it's but not. I think right now this is um, highlighting that. Oh, sorry, let me turn down my volume. I don't know if I'm echoing a little bit. No, you're okay. good. Okay. Um, I think right now it's just like everything's coming up 
it started with the pandemic. And like for me, you know, I a few weeks ago, I started with this idea of creating this pl platform, this safe space, so we could talk about COVID. And I just everything else just kind of have come up and whatnot. So you're right. But in that conversation, I also was hearing from a lot of people that um, an invisible part of our community is like the people who are being abused. And the fact that like we're, everybody's at home potentially with their abuser is something that like really concerned me. And I, I might not have the language to speak to that. So if you can kind of talk about like, you know, how significant that would be and like, wh why would that be different than like if you live with them, well, now you're just there a little bit longer. Like, why is it different now? Sure, absolutely. Um, so did we want to make, wait for Mike to join? Or um, I think he's still joining. I'm, yeah. And I don't, I know everybody's like really excited. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm gonna okay. text him right now to just let me know. Okay. So what I can do is while we're waiting, I can start um, discussing a little bit and just in terms of mental health yeah. about um, how meditation is helpful. Oh yes, yeah. So we can start with that. That's something um, I think that, you know, everyone should practice. Yeah. Um, so we'll go ahead and do that. So what I want to do is a quick guided five minute meditation. Um, this is something that I practice with my clients in, in our on our campus, but also something that I really highly recommend for people to do um, in their daily lives. Um, most people think that they can't meditate because our brains are too busy and we can't shut them off. But really meditation is practice and it's practice in a non-judgmental way, meaning that we think about it um, not as something that we have to be really good at, but something we're practicing and that it's not about being able to just clear your brain. So um, there's a lot of scientific benefits to meditation. It's free because all you have to do is breathe. Um, so you don't really need any resources for that. Um, but really it is practiced. Unfortunately, right now with the coronavirus, a lot of um, apps online that you typically have to pay for are um, for free. So you can access those. There's also a lot of really good guided meditations on YouTube that are free. So I would really recommend, um, you know, if this is something that people are thinking of doing and incorporating into their daily routine, mm -hmm. um, that they start, you know, with that. And it may take some time to figure out what it is that you liked, you know, in terms of guided meditation. But mm -hmm. again, it's all practice. So. We can go ahead and start that and um, it'll be about five minutes. And the first thing I want to do before I begin this is go through a few things to keep in mind. So I'm going to go ahead and read them off. So everyone should get into a comfortable position. Um, you know, no, try not to stand up. Should be really easy in your chair or wherever it is that you're seated. Um, and I'm gonna just read these off really slowly. Okay. So nothing is going to happen to you. No one's ever died from meditation. Thank goodness. Uh, you will not float away. 
you will not think nothing, so your brain's gonna keep going. You'll not stop your mind, so there's acceptance that you're still probably gonna have some intrusive thoughts. You will not have any mystical or magical experience. I won't, um, okay now, come on, <laughs> Um, you, I mean, some people might, I know that there's people who, who practice <laughs> meditation and feel that they do. So I don't want to take that away from anyone, but don't like expect to be like, Oh my God, it's, it's, I'm and all it's not supposed to be, um, you'll not solve all of life's problems in a few moments of silence. And that's okay. There's no right or wrong way to practice. You're simply going to sit and breathe. That's it and expect nothing from this experience but to sit and breathe. That way we're not putting expectations on ourselves that um, you know, can result in a disappointing experience because that's not what meditation should be about. Okay? Perfect. Okay, I'm gonna get myself comfortable. Okay, so posture is important as you wanna be comfortable and you wanna stay awake. Um, typically when I do this in our program, if people fall asleep, I just let them, um, because that means that they're relaxed. Um, but for these purposes, we don't want to fall asleep. Um, please sit in a chair. You don't need to sit on the floor and you can cross your legs or you can keep your feet firmly planted on the floor. Keep the back somewhat straight. So you don't want to hunch over. Keep your shoulders relaxed. Hands resting gently on your knees or your lap. Eyes closed if comfortable, or you can keep them open. Breathing through the nose or mouth, whatever is more comfortable for you. And the most important thing is to breathe comfortably. Okay, so we'll go ahead and start the meditation. Start with closing your eyes if comfortable or slightly open. Take three deep breaths. I'll go ahead and count them. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. And breathe out. Breathe in. And breathe out. As you settle into a natural rhythm of the breath, knowing throughout the practice you will hear sounds inside the room, sounds outside. These are not distractions. They're not disruptions. They're simply what's happening around us as we sit and breathe. Begin to notice the mind as it wanders, jumping from thought to thought. Gently guide the attention and focus to the stomach or chest. As you breathe in, feel them rise. Breathing out, feel them fall. Simply continue this practice, observing the sensation of breath. So we're just gonna do that for one minute.
Notice the mind as it wanders. Release that thought, returning attention and focus back to the breath. Breathing in, follow the breath in. Breathing out, follow the breath out. If the mind wanders, gently guide attention back to the breath. Let go of expectations or judgments of your practice. You're just sitting and breathing. Learn to be comfortable in stillness. Know what it's like to just sit and breathe. Again, take three deep breaths. One. Two. And three. Gently guide yourself back to the room. Slowly open the eyes and begin to move. So I know that's really brief, but hopefully you can do that at any time. Um, it's really helpful for anxiety, especially if you're experiencing it, um, you know, at night, if you can't sleep in the morning when you're preparing for your day. And I do recommend that whatever you do when people um, meditate, that they're turning off the TV. Don't keep the news on when you're doing this because those things that you hear are just going to flood your mind. So try, um, one thing I recommend is using headphones so that you can, um, you know, be more involved with what's going on. Okay. Thank you. And I actually, I know I didn't preface this at all, but I asked um, Dottie to take us through a meditation or breathing exercise for two reasons. One, it's a lot going on right now. We're processing a lot with the news. So we're processing a lot with the last two panels, you know? Um, and I and I want us to be able to take a moment and kind of like cleanse our palate, like start afresh as we begin this conversation because I know it can be, become very heavy. Um, Absolutely. And for some people it can be very triggering because we might identify patterns or things, red flags that you notice in your, your life that you might not have known before. And then the second reason why I asked um, Dottie to lead us through a meditation is because I think it's really important for our community to continue embracing different types of self-care and thinking about mental health, even if it's something as simple as give me two minutes to breathe, which is something my my big brother, not by blood, but my big brother, Kari, had to remind me today as I was freaking out to continue to breathe. And I was like, okay, I just did a breathing exercise. I feel so much better because I was panicking. So having these tools can really help us as we like navigate society, but also right now during this pandemic. Um, now that we do have Michael on here, can I have you introduce yourself, um, your experience with um, child or domestic abuse, uh, fighting against, you know. Those. Hello, um, my name is Michael Williams and I am a service president and CEO of Orchard's Children's Services. I've been uh, in this field since the late 70s, and um, I think it was, you know, my, my work is my work. Um, I, 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 I'm, 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 it's heavy. I, I'm glad I entered uh, into this conversation with the concept of breathing. Yeah. Because it's the, 
biggest issue right now is a person that couldn't couldn't breathe. Yeah. So I anchored this with a lot of credentials, but the most important credential I have is I'm a man, I'm an African-American male, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a grandfather, and all the other things are secondary. Uh, yeah. my, my, my track record is success in working with children and families uh, and really reveling in the opportunity to serve. I think we've lost that concept. All of us need to understand the importance of serving. And I want to acknowledge our host <laughs> reached out to me Thank you. Um, and to see the, the youthful movement because all things change because of youth. And whether it's the civil rights, uh, Mr. Sharpen talked about that yesterday, but I've worked with foster care children, but also work with children to, to keep them at home. I think we're really going to do our job and mainly focus now on poverty, which is our biggest nemesis and education. So that's a quick view. I am the president and CEO of Orchard's Children's Services. Um, we serve over 8,000 young people and families every year and mm -hmm. we serve them. And I'm, I'm founded in Michigan, uh, which gets a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm a product of Flint, Michigan, which when I was there was known for the athleticism and now most of the world knows it because of the poisoning. Um, so we have to really just change. I'm here to, to really have a conversation to change mm -hmm. the way we view ourselves, the way we have to work together. And as the, the prior person say, to learn how to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. I want to start this conversation by asking, how do we define abuse at home, like domestic or child abuse? How do you define it? Well, there's neglect and then there's abuse. Uh, abuse is typically a physical uh, deterrent of someone's being. Uh, neglect, I think, is it's even a great problem, and that is your inability to provide, um, whether that's a bed, whether that's a, a nutrition, whether that's water, uh, and those things happen as a result. Most families that come to us are pretty good families, but lack the ability to provide their children in a way that's going to be uh, most helpful. Obviously, um, the, the business changed a lot. And I say business from the standpoint of uh, it's a business because we have employees, but the crack academic changed everything. It changed mm -hmm. the African-American community more drastically than anything else. And we continue to react versus being proactive. So abuse is, is something that's done uh, typically in a physical way. Neglect is something that affects only the mind, body, and soul of a person. And, and I think we have to really focus on that because those are the things that we can have some control over. Most of our cases are as a result of neglect and most of the country's issues are as a result of neglect. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, absolutely abuse. Um, typically you see it uh, manifest in a physical way. Um, Oftentimes with physical abuse, you will see emotional abuse go hand in hand because um, typically there are a lot of verbal altercations that occur between the abuser and the victim um, leading up to during and after the um, abusive event. Um, and really what that creates is a lot of trauma. Um, some, a, a trend that has occurred in the last few years in mental health is to recognize that 
PTSD isn't just uh, veterans coming home from war or one isolated event such as a car accident. Right. PTSD right. is complex and can be sustained uh, or, or can develop in a person and a child and then an adult later in life having experienced extensive amounts of repeated abuse mm -hmm. throughout their lifetime. And those have different effects on a person in various ways. Um, you know, there's an ACE, an ACEs test, um, ACEs spelled A-C-E-S, that a person can take that I highly recommend. What's which that? Which is a screener. Um, it's Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, I'll go ahead and put it on. So your ACE score was something that was um, developed many years ago by leaders in the community, um, particularly by doctors, um, who found that children who were who were manifesting a lot of physical illnesses actually had experienced a lot of trauma, whether it be because of poverty um, and you know direct experiences of having a lack of resources in their communities, such as in poor black communities and poor brown communities. Um, you'll find that they started to have chronic illnesses like asthma and things that develop later on in adulthood that um, made life expectancy and whatnot go down drastically. So the body, and there's an excellent book called The Body Keeps the Score, mm -hmm. which goes mm -hmm. over what how our bodies kind of hold that trauma in. Then you combine, you know, racial injustices and the climate that we're in right now and those ACEs scores go up. So the higher your score is, the more likely or, or the more um, likely you are that you're going to have physical issues later on in life. So, so yeah, and it's a really complicated subject. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. But I think that would be great to like, you would provide people a foundation like kind of to start with, you know? Um, I'm someone who's always been a out very vocal advocate of mental health, um, like therapy, counseling and whatnot. And the best therapy, as I tell people, is like A, when you're not in crisis, or B, when you can identify what you're feeling and what you're going through. You might not have all the vocabulary, but if you can call someone and say, I just went through this, this, and this, can you help me figure out what's the next step or how I can avoid finding these people again? That's a really great way for you to meet a, a therapist or whatnot. So I'm, I really appreciate you putting something out there for even thinking about PTSD because, like you said, a lot of times we think about like veterans um, and and whatnot. What does child abuse tend to look like, or have, how have you seen it in the Black community? Like, it, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's it's really important to look at at trauma. From a, from from a lot of perspectives, I really appreciate this conversation because I like to expand it to the point of where is trauma not only an indicative action that people have on it could be a, a condition. If you're born in in certain areas and you're the fifth generation impoverished, that denotes trauma, and a, a baby cannot take those the test. But if we understand how words and, and, and things are influenced. Uh, I'll use some concrete examples. Mm -hmm. 
when uh, the African-American population was smoking this thing called, they call now marijuana, they called it dope. <laughs> when Europeans smoked it, it became drugs. Yeah. When they smoked it, when, African, when blacks smoked it, it was weed. When they smoked it, it became grass. Psychologically, that has an effect. Who does? Who wants weeds? Who mm -hmm. wants versus grass? In terms of just a projection. Yeah. So I, 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 I think, I think it's important to, to to recognize the things that that create trauma, and there is no measurement in, in terms of relationships because I'm I, I am a researcher, and, and I think that's really important that we look at things because we repeat history. But there are things that have been intentionally done, or unintentionally done that have affected people. I, example, uh, a neighborhood used to consist of a porch. What happened to the porches? Most communities now are built with decks. They, yeah. So, so the trauma that children, exp and then we built these things. I was a mayor at one point in time, and I refused to call any housing development a project because the project really denotes that it's not completed. But so exactly. if you live in the projects, first of all, you were being exposed from a traumatic perspective from zero to one, most children still lived in the home, but now one year old, you were, what I was exposed to from one to three was the front porch and then the front yard. And my first experience with the real world was school. Mm -hmm. Now you've got young people, one year old walking outside, seeing everything that I didn't see, exposure, and those create traumatic situations and how to deal with issues. Yeah. The, the violence is seen, uh, is, 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 is manifested in a lot of ways. So abuse, it has a lot of tenets. It is the emotional abuse. It is the physical abuse, which is the easiest to measure. Because physical abuse is, is a call, and you get protective services, and and you can see the bruises. But the emotional abuse is the most difficult to measure. And the other thing that we don't praise people who overcome mental health issues. Yeah. You know, if you go to Gold Gym, if you go to Gold Gyms, well, when it was open, <laughs> you would you would see the people with the bodies that are great that are built up in the front. Right. The people that were building up their body started off in the back. So there's some progression. What happens when you accomplish mental health, overcome mental health issues? First of all, you get quiet. You don't let yeah. people know. Uh, and, I'm fine uh, now. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and are you ever good? Because mm -hmm. you always need help and you always need support. Right. And, and now that used to be strength, asking for help and asking for support. Now it's seen as a weakness. And I, I think we have to really shift this because We've got a situation where leadership doesn't take any responsibility, which is the key to leadership, mm -hmm. saying, I have to change. And the second area is dealing with the trauma of, of, of what this thing does from birth on, and how do you put that in the DSM format so that it, be, it becomes a, not only a diagnosis, but, but a prognosis to success has to be established if, in fact, we're going to really deal with this issue of racism and crime, because that is a traumatic experience. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ford, so it, it, it affected the whole world. Yeah. And that we see this over and over again. And that it's not like, I mean, it was horrific because it was so prolonged. I'm sorry, I'm hearing something like a clicking or something. I'm hearing like a clicking sound. It oh. sounds like a typing, I think. Yeah. I don't know where that's coming from because I'm not typing. We're talking honestly, so they're trying to block you. But we're gonna keep on talking. Yeah, we're gonna just keep going because I thought like I'm like everybody looks engaged. I don't know what's that. We'll just pretend someone's typing us. Yeah, they're, they're writing down our notes. Okay, they're writing down our notes. So we're speaking all flames, all fire. Um, so I know 
one thing, like I grew up, I grew up in a tutoring service. So I grew up around a lot of kids. Now that I'm older and I've like gone through therapy, I realized one thing that I, I've seen a lot of, which is perhaps a sign of trauma, kids being scared to answer questions. Kids being scared to be wrong. Like I'm like pet petrified, like, can you read this sentence to me? Like, even if you are gonna not know any words that we have to help you through it, like just being petrified or like answer this five plus five that I know you know. But it's this fear of just like being wrong, you know? Like, have you have you seen that? And like, is that part of trauma? Is that part of is that a sign or something we should think about? Yeah. It can be. Um there also tends to be a high degree of um, startle response. So if you come behind a child and you put them on their back or say, hey, so, you know, and you call their name and they jump, mm -hmm. that can be another sign of, um, of abuse. The other thing that I learned actually this year that I didn't realize is that um, typically we would say that children who are withdrawn um, have obvious physical signs of abuse or have anger issues where they're really lashing out um, would be what you would suspect for being abused. But there's also another side to that coin. Um, we tend to see children who are, uh, oh, they're called over-functioners. Yeah. And what happens yeah. is you'll have a child who is so terrified of disappointing the abusive parent that they'll try to be perfect. So what they'll do is they'll try to be that person in class that gets straight A's. Mm -hmm. They'll end up being that person who is trying to be at the, you know, the best athlete, all of those different things. And they're hoping that if they please the abuser in some way, the abuse will stop. But yeah. unfortunately, yeah. what we learn is most people who abuse can never be satisfied because it has nothing to do with the child. It has to do with them. The other exactly. thing that um, we see in hospitals or, or during, you know, with the advent of the coronavirus is that the so the primary person who reports abuse are teachers, are educators, because they're the one who sees the child every single day and can see, you know, little incremental changes that may be apparent or indicative of abuse. What's happening is because those children are now home and exposed to the abuser for longer and longer periods of time, they're ending up in the hospital um, with physical injuries that are much more severe than they used to be. So, and they don't have access to the educators that they used to have that would be that front line for an, a child protective services call. So really, um, communities need to step in. We need to be the one that observes our neighbors. We, I'm not saying that we all need to be nosy and be yeah, yeah. But well, really there, be mindful. Yes, it ha there has to be that case because I can't tell you how many times, even for myself as a child, it was really obvious that there was something going on, and neighbors and people just didn't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. uh, especially now, because if if our communities are the front line in making reports. Um, because we don't trust the cops, we don't want to call the cops to deal with the situation. It has to come from communities more than just educators. You don't have to be a mandated reporter um, yeah. in order to call. Um, and I also recommend that people keep documentation. 
again, I know it probably sounds creepy mm -hmm. like to sit there and have to write notes about things you're observing on your neighbor. Mm -hmm. But if you think that there's a problem, don't turn away. And even after you first report the potential abuse, don't stop there because it's probably going to take several tries and pushing in order for something to happen and to get that child into a safe, into a safe place. Yeah, uh, Michael will be right back. So he'll be right back. I I don't know if you watched the show um, Riverdale. Have you ever watched the yes. show? Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> The last season, I haven't finished it, but they address um, child abuse in some sense where the father is yelling at the child a lot and Archie from the comics um, is trying to defend the, the young boy. Watching it, I felt two ways, okay? A, mm -hmm. I felt like, A, you're a kid, you know? So like the power dynamics there. B, I felt like, what would I do if I was a student or, you know, and this was happening? like what could I do to be there? And then like, if I was another parent, because there's a lot of parents watching this and there's a coach out there watching this, what could I do to help this? Is I'm not seeing anything physical, but I'm seeing something that's very verbal and abusive. And I see this child changing. I see his demeanor changing. I see he's being angry and aggressive. This is all on the show, <laughs> you know, like, and I felt like even in right. how they created it, it felt very real in a sense. So a lot of children who see changes in their friends and who have parents who are good parents and want to talk to them, um, you know, being able to voice that to them is a big part of it. Um, there can be cultural, um, there can be cultural difficulties though, because again, um, I, the Latino community I can speak to as being very, we tend to be very secretive. You want to talk to each other, you know, about each other's business. Um, and you tend to see some patterns like that in black communities. And it's because there's a certain amount of shame that is attached to having to talk and open up about your family dynamics with strangers. The other thing, too, is that child protective services, for some deserved reasons, get a really bad rap because they tend to not follow up as much as they're supposed to. And social workers will see things and either not report it or follow up on them like they should. So really the, the team of caregivers in the child's life, whoever that is, has to be able to step up and do that. The other thing is that um, in impoverished communities, of course you don't want police presence in your home. And um, for a, a multitude of reasons that I think we all know are obvious. You don't know how it can yeah. end up. Like, yeah. Um, so I'm not going to advocate for people calling the cops every single time they think that something's wrong. Um, however, you can um, call national um child abuse hotlines that are readily available if you search. And those people can direct you to where your local shelters are. We have a really good shelter here in Sacramento called Weave that actually is for women and for um, children that they can temporarily stay in while a qualified worker is um, helping them come up with a plan. Because yeah. that's really yeah. it. Um, the other thing that we have to remember is sometimes, and this isn't to demonize women at all, but sometimes women or men will not report the abuser because they're 
focused on, they're dependent on the abuser for different things, whether it's shelter, mm -hmm. whether it's um, being able to pay for goods and services. So they're having to outweigh that with, do I report and then get put in a shelter and possibly lose my housing? Yeah. So those yeah. are really difficult things that you can't figure out on your own. It, it, they're things that have to go to train crisis intervention yeah. um, professionals yeah. that are hopefully culturally, um, culturally informed and culturally trained and not just are going to come in there and um, demonize you. Right. So that's a, a big piece of it. I, uh, I make on the phone because I think that like going back to also community, if you have people like in the family or around you that are shaming that action, the more people who call out negative actions, the less it happens, you know, a silly kind of side note, but guys who cheat and they have a lot of friends who condone that they're going to keep bragging to their friends about this wild story that happened. Let me top that. Versus if you have a lot of friends who are condemning you, well, you do it or not, you're not going to be open about it. You're not going to, it's going to be something you think a second about uh, twice about because it's not, you're not, it's not being let like slide or whatever, you know? I know it's kind of right. a silly example, but. No, it's not at all. If you live in it, if you expose yourself and you're in an echo chamber all the time mm -hmm. and people just reflect back what you already think, why would you think it needs to change? Yeah. Um, the other thing too, is that when we're, people don't want to criticize their own communities and I understand that, but part of being able to grow as a community is being able to also criticize where some of the, you know, the need for growth is, but all, that all comes down to trust. And it's really hard to tell communities like the black community that they should focus and reach out for all of these resources when those resources have consistently and systemically failed them. Yeah. You know, it's really difficult to say that. Um, so, you know, Michael mentioned education, and that's a really big part mm -hmm. of it. Um, I didn't know anything about what I was going through. The only thing that saved me was because I went and I gave myself a good education because I wanted to understand because nobody was going to explain it to me. Mm -hmm. so, um, so there are more mental health resources available right now. Um, but, yeah. but community yeah. building is a big part of that. You know, every piece of your event here is all intertwined yeah. and all affects each other. Exactly. Um, and like, I know, you know, like when I was at Wellesley, my senior year, I ran for college government president on a platform of reducing stress, partnering with the Stone Center, which is our like a counseling center. And as well, I partnered with quite a few professors who did change their policies around some of the grading practices to reduce stress. I think having the conversation, a lot of people are willing once you start talking about it. You know, I think more people, once you start talking about like, this is a sign of abuse. When you see kids shutting down out of nowhere, you don't have to just look at physical abuse. When you see kids who are speaking out in a certain kind of manner about things and just have a lot of anger, that's something to dig deeper into. How do we get to a point where, and this is might be theoretical, how do we get to a point where we start thinking of like the men and women who have been abused as survivors of something and not as having defects or me, if I went through this, I'm not a broken person? Because like, for side note, a lot of narcissists, they go for really great people who are empaths or empathetic.
they have a lot of really great characteristics. But if you've been victim to narcissists or a social psychopath, then you're going to have a lot of self-doubts and you're not going to be able to recognize that you have really great qualities that they don't have and it's why they're leeches. But we're, we get stuck on like, I'm a victim, I'm defected. How do we break that? And I mean, that's an ongoing question. I think that that's really difficult and it probably looks different from each individual. Um, you know, the biggest, the abuser, the typical thing that they do to try to make sure you don't have access to your resources and to get out is to isolate you. Mm -hmm. So noticing signs of isolation in yourself is a really big um, part of it. Um, but also, you know, the narcissist or the chronic abuser is someone who is going to make you think that that's what you deserve. And that's why children, child abuse can often be so prevalent because the child is growing up and learning who they are. Yeah. And if you get in early and you start to tell the child that they're not worth it, that their life doesn't matter, that their property, et cetera, you can, you know, throw off their entire um, psychological development. So yeah. there's the education piece. But also I think a lot of this um, falls on the shoulders of doctors. A lot of primary care physicians and pediatricians don't have adequate screening tools to be able to have a discussion with a child and ask the right questions. And I would say that this is even the case with adults. They'll give you a little paper, a little screen and be like, are you stressed out on a scale of one to 10? Right. You know, like 10, but then won't actually have a conversation with you after that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's a, a little bit better now, but for the most part, especially in impoverished communities who don't have regular access to healthcare, um, they need to, yeah. you know, because those pediatricians are educated um, professionals who can actually ask the adult to not be in the room yeah. and sit there and have discussions with the child in a trained way so that you can see some of those signs and then they can make the appropriate referrals or the phone calls that they need to. So there has to Sorry. How do we recognize if we found somebody who might have bias, because we know a lot of times with black women, and I'm sure black men go into different medical, anything, any any kind of medical, anything, a lot of times we're not fully heard, or the pain or the suffering we're going through is kind of like, oh girl, like I know life is rough, or you just bipolar, or like they throw something at you. You might be bipolar, but a lot of times there's so, people have a bias, or they're like, oh, your child's ADHD, and they, you just met him. Like, how do you know yeah. what my child is or not? You know, how do we start to, to get a better sense, a gauge? So it's hard. Um, yeah. and, and one of the reasons it's hard is because, and I'll, I, I'll speak for people who don't have the resources, like so typically in uh, black and brown communities that are in poorer neighborhoods who have either underinsured, not insured, or have like a state funded program. You just get, um, you get assigned a doctor. You don't even really have a choice. And most people, yeah. So oh. most people don't know that they can actually call their health plan and um, make a complaint or ask for more information about the qualifications of that specific person. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're looking for a doctor and 
you know, you can make a decision, but most of the time they just assign you. Um, it's really about asking that doctor questions. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about them? What are some things I should be looking for um, with regards to my age, with my family history, um, et cetera? And they should be screening you. If they're not screening you, tell them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at the point where I write out, and this is really bad, but I'll type out an entire thing on my history, my medication, yeah. and everything. Because I don't want to hear an excuse that they didn't know. Yeah. So that's one part of it is really advocating for yourself. The other thing, too, is most health insurance companies, and I know health insurance companies aren't the best, do have advocates or are required to have advocates um, that can help liaison you with the specific doctor that you have. Um, but it's difficult. You know, yeah. none of these are easy fixes. Yeah. Um, the other thing I noticed, too, is that when black women and black men go into the hospital and say that there's something wrong, they're often not believed. And then when uh, so you have to push it. I mean, mm -hmm. you really have to push it um, or speak to those resources that you have that can help for them you know, to be heard. So most hospitals find what happened. The truth gets blocked a lot around here. Right, right. right. Uh, were there any, I know you were listening. Was there anything yeah. that you wanted to add to what we've been talking about? Well, I, I just think to have this discussion and have two, and again, I, don't, I, I didn't check your resume, so I don't know your ages, but to have two young people talking about things of this nature is very key because your voice will be the transformational voice. Uh, I am continuing to look at uh, issues of abuse uh, you know we talk about relationships with men and women mm -hmm. and i think it's really important to note that we have responsibility as men uh it's just been downplayed uh it's almost like uh if, if you look particularly african-american community the, the amount of graduations from college has shifted uh african-american woman has excelled uh and college is just one format it's not the format but um there are not many opportunities if you don't have an education. Right. Uh, and the street, has, the street has become an entrepreneurial ship. And when, when, when success is only measured by economic terms, we're in trouble. It's not yeah. measured by how you treat, how you treat uh, your wife, your spouse, uh, your girlfriend. Uh, actually, sometimes things are, are glamorized in a way that belittles it. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the whole commitment area has lessened. And one of the things that we really working on at, at Orchard is a holistic training to, to really teach young men how to be men. We have 94% graduation rate in the city of Flint, Detroit. And it's not because we're doing anything besides having higher expectations. Uh, and I think you're going to rise to the expectations. The expectations are lower. You know, you, you can't tell if school is in and now school is out. But at one point in time, uh, again, I'm older than both of you. When you skipped school, when I grew up, you had to hide. Right. And over the porch phenomena, Miss Jones was the person so you to stay in someone's basement for seven hours you better off going to school right so the alternative, <laughs> and, I, and i really just need to understand how history is repeating itself but also how it's gotten worse because we're supposed to be a more educated society a more sophisticated society and uh and i think that the, the terminology is really key here yeah. I, I think what you're saying 
when you say abuse, some people think that that's interaction. Right. Uh, the way we, uh, I was on a subway in, in, in uh, New York, and one of the young men was referring to his young lady. It was a gang, and they were referring to the lady with the B word. Mm. And I went up and said, man, I got to tell you, it's sad because your, your girl is seeing a lot of men. He said, what do you mean? I said, because her name is B. <laughs> that girl is everywhere. I don't know. I've never met her. <laughs> but I heard about her already. <laughs> I've been thinking about the reference points for right. how do you respect those type of things. And right. um, we just we just really do a, a reset because one person said we're not we don't want to go back to normal. Normal was never that good for us. Right. We want we want a new we want, we want to define what norm, what we want as normal. Can I ask you a question, Michael? And this is kind of something that just happened in like. The, like hip hop, so I'm gonna try to put some context to it. Mm-hmm. Recently, we have this local hip, not local, we have this hip hop artist, Lil Bootsy, who has mm-hmm. been making nudes all over because he is probably mid late 40s and he's right. hired strippers to have sex with his 12 year old and 11 year old son or nephews and sons. He's talked about this over the years. In 2017, he talked about it. And again, he's been all over since the pandemic. Um, the Instagram talking about the fact that he's paid for fellatio and that he's um, also had intercourse with the same people, women, like grown women. That um, a lot of people have not been quick to what we call cancel him as a culture and say like, hey, we're not listening to his music or even address it as abuse. I think, I don't, okay, let me not, let me not put what I think. No, go ahead. You see, I'm getting to me. It sounds like this is child abuse. I don't know if it's because it's happening to young boys. It seems different. I would like to get your viewpoint as a black man and someone who works in child abuse. Well, it's it is abuse. Uh, It's 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 not only abuse. It's 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 a psychological diminishing way of looking at the the rights of passage to be a man. Mm-hmm. Because he's teaching them that the engagement, uh, you know, it's interesting, again, because we've forgotten our history, when Europeans did that to our 12-year-old girl that was raped. And, you know, and I don't know if a child can consent not to do those type of things, but the fact that women would like engage in that and allow themselves to diminish themselves. So it's a two-way street there. It, it, it's uh, the fact that a 40-year-old person could think that that's a rites of passage for a young man and what that's going to create in terms of his viewpoint of women. And secondarily, who was his mother? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think I, I've been able to really, what would happen if your mother would, and, and again, are there mothers that are not uh, doing things right? But most mothers are, are, are very caring. And what would happen if, if, if every African-American man, every man, Put their mother on their, sh- their right shoulder and said, "Would you do this? If, if, would you want this done to your mom?" Even in, in situations that are stressful, most people try to protect that precious thing called the mother because that's what's filtered to serve. That's why we all here. Right. So, I I, it, it, I I know about that and I heard about that. And economics, some, t- I mean, how can you become famous for doing that? There, there was a time when fame beget talent. Well, there's a couple of names. One of the things, again, from a research and people, perspective. Like, people want to talk about Michael Jackson, 
for alleged stuff. And he's tell he's saying out his mouth that I did this. I spent money on this. Yes, come here, nephew. Let these people know what I did to abuse you. And everybody's like, let's wipe wipe me down. Let's play the song. Let's keep like again. I, I don't know. As this is like one of the first times I've been able to talk to somebody about this, you know, and then it well, also made me think about a lot of times you hear, you know, hurt people, hurt people, you know, but like, is he also like, was he ever abused and is doing this to someone else? And with, could he have to be in some way, a point that he's got it, he could have gotten mental health, like mental counseling or something to help him out that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but and no. it's more difficult because we tell men that they shouldn't be going to counseling. Like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. There's still a massive stigma. Yeah, well, there's a huge stigma. But isn't that defining, let's define what a man is. Is that being a man? Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to that basic concept. About 20 some years ago, we should have revolted when they started calling things reality TV. Because mm-hmm. now you've got a generation and a half that see reality as a basis for six, seven women arguing. Right. We've got, well, uh, we got somebody that's leading the country. This is not, that's not reality. Yeah. And when you start creating that kind of framework, you get a, a man that thinks a 12 year old boy engaging in fellatio with strippers or women, because, you know, strippers is a meaning too. Yeah, yeah. That speaks to where where is our reality, and and I think until we get a basis and an understanding, and listen, you know what you need in order to be respected as a woman. Yeah, I need to listen to that because I can't teach that unless you teach me. Mm. And unfortunately, we we've got a situation where women are being dropped off by their boyfriend, going around with their boys. The seats are all the way back. They're late to pick her up from work. <laughs> and that's just unimaginable. But we've we got to wait. About the amount of black women who have been sex slaves which are oh, yeah. throughout, you know, or who people, men came to high school looking for them because they were cute and picked them up and stuff like that. And like people from the 80s, 90s, whatever, all, yeah, I remember when I was in high school, that happened. Yeah, you know, they just talked about reality TV mm-hmm. and Rashida. She talked about he got her a car when she was in high school as a grown man because he was a drug dealer and she was cute. Like, you know, well, I know we're, we're, yeah. we're out of time. <laughs> well, we have to have another panel. Thank you, but I want to say this. More. We need to really address the fact that you've got young people born in 9-11 and graduating in the pandemic. Yeah, That's a trauma-based generation that we really need to be paying attention to because they don't know how to really deal with the realities of, of life because they're born and, and a tragic and, they, and they're graduating. They don't have that senior memory that we all had in terms of that transformation to adulthood. So I appreciate that. I apologize. Uh, but I, yeah. I I love listening to you too. I want to stay connected. Uh, yeah. And we will stay connected because once I meet you, you're connected and you're responsible for, for helping all children. Likewise. So- likewise. Well, I definitely have you all back because I just know there's more for us to talk about. Hopefully we'll be on Hop In, which is another platform where it lets us break into sessions, have, pose a question to the people to talk amongst themselves, and then come back to our panel. So we can pose a question, how do you feel about this? They can talk about it, and then we come back. So it's more interactive. That's what we're hoping uh, with donations. 
Thank you so much. Are there any last comments you all want to make to our um, audience? California first. Uh, no. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and leave my email address in the comments if anyone wants to reach out for me to me to help them find resources. Um, and yeah, and keep meditating and doing yeah. your breath, your breath practices, please. That's one I'm small thing you can do for yourself. And I'm gonna close by saying, Rita asked for support. If this effort doesn't re require support, nothing else. So I'd ask everybody to take a chance, take an opportunity to donate, to make sure that this continues to be a dialogue because I've learned a lot uh, and uh, I'm going to stay a green tomato. I'm going to continue to stay close to the vine so I can continue to look. I'm never going to be red because a red tomato is eaten or it turns rotten. And right. I won't do either. <laughs> Thank, you. Well, Thank you. I'll be on the next one. I'll email you. Right. <laughs> Bye.